whenever we are faced with the negative repercussions of a technology, which there are many, right? Paul Virilio said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So what did we do? Did we stop sailing ships? How come we don't hear about shipwrecks today? What do we do? We made ships better. And so that's exactly what we always do. We adapt our behaviors, but the solution is to fix these problems with more people getting into our field, more people improving the problems with the last generation of technology. Hey everyone, this is James Courier, and today we've got Nir Eyal with us. He is an author of two best-selling books. One is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, which came out in 2013, and also Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, which came out in 2019. It's out right now. He's a former instructor at the Stanford GSB, and I've known him for a bunch of years. And Nir, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much, James. Great to be here. Keep in mind that we have a very smart audience of early stage startup founders. Right? There's a lot to dig in here with how they can take your lessons and a product that apply it to their product thinking, how they need to update that thinking to be sure that things are going well for the long term, how you can apply your methods for focusing to reach peak productivity for their startup. So you talk about habit forming for people. You can talk about hooks in products. It's interesting. At NFX, for instance, we believe that speed is a startup's number one advantage. And so that's something that we would love people to have as a habit is to get hooked on speed. It's a habit they can build about doing the thing that's faster, doing the thing that gets some more information more quickly. How could you model something like that? So instead of thinking about how do we model a web-based product or a mobile-based product, how do we create a habit for people to do something positive for themselves, like go fast? Yeah, so this is where definitions really matter. So if you'll indulge me for a minute, let's talk about what is a habit, because I think the term is widely misunderstood and misused. A habit, by definition, is an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. So if a behavior is not something that you can do with little or no conscious thought, it will never become a habit. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think, you know, we've kind of reached peak habits, so to speak. There's been a lot of books recently about habits, particularly in the personal self-help, uh, personal development space. And it's become kind of the shorthand for I need to do something that kind of sucks, but I don't want it to suck. So can you just make it into a habit? I really need to exercise. That's very important. I know, but I hate exercise. I'm going to turn it into a habit. I want to write that novel that I've been procrastinating on for years. I really don't like writing. So can I just build a writing habit? No, you can't. Because by definition, a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. It's like saying, I'm going to go to the gym and I want to get stronger, but I don't want to stress myself. I don't want to have any difficulty lifting that weight. Well, deliberate practice, you know, this whole idea of the 10,000 hour rule and all that deliberate practice requires the opposite of a habit. It requires a ton of of conscious thought. And so that's why I'm a little bit wary of making business processes that require thought, that require deliberation into habits, because by definition, they can't become habits unless they're done with little or no conscious thought. What they can become is a routine. A routine is a series of actions frequently repeated. That is something that you can routinize. You can make into a system, which not necessarily isn't really a habit. And you say, okay, well, big deal, Nier, whatever, just one term or the other, it doesn't matter. Actually, I think it does matter because when people think they are starting a habit, 
And that behavior is, by definition, never going to become a habit. They read something on the internet that's 21 days to form a habit or 60 days to form a habit. Some kind of, you know, none of that stuff is actually based by any good research, but whatever. They do it for those number of days. Then the behavior is still hard, right? It hasn't met that bar of being somehow effortless and easy that they expected. And so what do they do? Do they blame the guru's book they read about habits? No, they blame themselves. And they say, oh, there must be something wrong with me because it's not easy. So I must be broken somehow. So when you're getting going as a startup company, in order to get anyone to pay attention to a chaotic world, you have to develop ways to get and keep people's attention to even have a business, to have a product, to make any impact on any people. Is that right? That's a big part of my second book, Indistractable, is being not every product has to be habit forming, but every product that needs a habit needs a hook. So lots of products that, you know, I talk about this in the book and as an angel investor, I disqualify many companies that will never form a habit. And the criteria for a product that will not form a habit, one, it has to actually satisfy a user need. This is not mind control. You can't get people to do something that they themselves don't want to do. It doesn't work that way. These techniques are good. They're not that good, right? You can't make people do something they don't want to do. So it has to provide real lasting value because people aren't idiots. If a product is not serving them, they'll look for alternatives or they'll stop using your product altogether. The second criteria is sufficient frequency. And this is a big one. This is probably the number one reason that I will not invest in a company or tell a company that I'm consulting with that their product doesn't have a hope of forming a habit is if the behavior does not occur with sufficient frequency, that the cutoff seems to be a week's time or less, that if your product is not used Within a week's time or less, it's very difficult to change a consumer habit. There's exceptions. There are exceptions, but by and large, it's a week's time or less. So again, if you're selling, let's say you're selling car insurance. Well, you don't use car insurance once a week, right? You only use car insurance if God forbid you get in an accident. So it's not that every product needs to be habit forming. What I do recommend though, is that a habit is one competitive moat. It is one form of competitive advantage. Now, there are many, many different types of forms of competitive advantage, as you know, you know better than anyone, right? There's network effect, as you write about, there's intellectual property, there's economies of scale. Habit is one of those competitive advantages, right? You don't need any more evidence than you know thinking about Google. When I present in front of an audience, I'll ask people, how many of you have searched with Google in the past 24 hours? Out of 100 people, 99 hands will go up. And then when you say, okay, how many of you have searched with the number two search engine? How many of you searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? Maybe the hand of one or two people, typically former Microsoft employees, their hands go up. Why is that? Is Google just so much better? No. In third-party studies, when we compare the Google search results to Bing search results and you strip out the branding so people don't know which is which, it's a 50-50 preference split. People can't tell the difference. And yet we reflexively go use Google. We Google it. We even made it into a verb without even considering whether the competition's product is any better. And so this is why habits are such a huge competitive advantage because when you form a habit in a consumer's mind, I call this the monopoly of the mind, they don't even consider whether the competition is making a better product. And that's why it's such a huge competitive advantage. So what's the thesis of Indistractable? That came out just last year, less than a year ago. Yeah. So if Hooked was about how do we build good habits in people's lives, primarily through technology, Indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits? Okay. So being an industry insider, I know all the tips and tricks that they use to get you hooked. And so I can tell you from an insider's perspective, how do we make sure that these technologies are something that serve us as opposed to us serving them? And as much as people hear about how these technologies are hijacking your brain and addicting you and, uh, you know, manipulating us, this is hyperbole. The solution 
solution, the antidote to this stuff is actually not that tough. <laughs> that we really can put these distractions in their place if we know how. And so I really, I wrote this book just like I wrote Hooked for myself. When I was looking for this book I couldn't find, I found that I was struggling with distraction. I've never been someone who has a lot of willpower, a lot of self-control. In fact, I used to be clinically obese. So even saying the word willpower gives me, you know, uh, mm -hmm. gives me hives because I never had much willpower growing up. And so the same thing happened with technology that I would find that I would say I was going to do one thing. I would sit down on my desk and I was going to work on that big project or write that new blog post. And yet somehow I would do something else. And so you've developed a model for managing distraction. Can you walk me through that? Sure. Yeah. So in fact, it's up where Hook left off. So it's another four-step model. I'm partial to four-step models. And in this case, where we have to start is by understanding what is distraction. What do we mean by that word? So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So what is the opposite of distraction? Most people say the opposite of distraction is focus, but it's not. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, is traction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same uh, letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that pull you towards your values, help you become the kind of person you want to become. That's traction. The opposite of traction is dis. Distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you intended to do, away from your values, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So why is this important? Because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction. So for example, when I would sit down at my desk before I spent five years writing this book, my normal routine was I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, today I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm going to work on that big project I've been putting off. Nothing's going to get in my way. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me just check some email, right? Yeah. <laughs> first, let me just scroll those Slack channels real quick. Or let me just do those to-dos on my to-do list. Those easy tasks, those fun things that I really kind of like, like doing, that I enjoy doing. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most pernicious form of distraction. The distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent rather than the important. That is the most pernicious form of distraction because I would say to myself, well- Because you're in action. So you're deceiving yourself because you're in action. Exactly. Email is something I have to do, right? Isn't that part of my job? Yeah, I guess it is. But I would use those things that I you know, wanted to do or didn't hate as much doing as opposed to doing the things I said I had to do, like work on that difficult proposal or whatever the case might be that I kept procrastinating on. So any action can become a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. And conversely, any action can be traction if that's what you plan to do. So unlike these chicken little tech critics telling us that technology is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting everyone, rubbish. It's BS. There's nothing wrong with going on Facebook. It's not mind control, people. It's not addicting everyone. It's some people it addicts, but certainly doesn't addict everyone, not even close. The same way that, you know, alcohol is highly addictive, but not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner is an alcoholic. That's preposterous. So the same with social media. If you plan time in your day to go on YouTube, to go on Facebook, to go on Instagram, great, enjoy it, but do it on your schedule, not the tech company's schedule. So now, James, we have traction and we have distraction, okay? You can think of it like a number line pointing to the right and to the left. Now, what prompts us to take these actions? Well, back to what I talked about in Hooked, we have those same external triggers and internal triggers. So external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that leads us towards traction or distraction can serve us 
if they are helping us do what we said we were going to do. So I got an alarm on my phone that said, hey, it's time to talk to James. We're going to have this conversation. Great. That's what I plan to do. That external trigger was serving me. But when I was with my daughter a few years ago and I would constantly check my phone, despite the fact that I said I was going to spend quality time with someone I love very much. Well, now that was a distraction that was leading me away from what I plan to do. So it's about is the external trigger serving you or are you serving the external trigger? But as bad as those external triggers think the external triggers are the source of the problem, one of my big revelations with this book and the five years of research is that what I discovered was that the external triggers are not the leading cause of distraction, okay? Those are not the leading cause. The number one cause of distraction is not what is happening outside of us, but rather distraction begins from within. So it's all about those internal triggers. That is the source of the vast majority of our distraction. Boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, loneliness, anxiety, stress. We seek escape from that discomfort. And so that is the first step to becoming indistractable is doing what I call mastering the internal triggers. Having a system in place so that you don't need to expend a lot of willpower. You don't need a lot of self-control. You have a methodology for dealing with those uncomfortable states so that you can you can put them in their place. So that's step number one is mastering the internal triggers. Now we're just going to go around those four steps. Step number two is make time for traction. You know, the vast majority of people don't keep any sort of a calendar. Maybe they keep a to-do list, which by the way, we can talk about why to-do lists are probably the worst thing you can do for your personal productivity. So we have to make time for traction in our day. The third Third step is to hack back the external triggers, right? If we know that these technologies are hacking our attention, clearly they are. So is, you know, all media hacks our attention. Why can't we hack back? Of course we can hack back. And so I show you how to do that with your technology, with meetings. Oh my God, how distracting are meetings these days, right? How do we make sure that meetings aren't distracting? Or for example, our kids, right? You're trying to work from home. What about if it's your kids that are the source of distraction, not your phone? I tell you exactly how to hack back those distractions. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with Hacked. And so this is where we have a firewall against distraction. The last line of defense is we can make what we call a pre-commitment device. We can use one of these pre-commitment devices to help us stay on track when we say we will. And so it's really about using these four steps in concert, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. That's how we become indistractable. You've said that our instinct is a claim we don't have enough time in the day to get everything we want done, but that's not really true. Is indistractability the same as time management or how is it different? So I like to say that time management is pain management. This is why I wrote this book. When I have a problem in my life, I think through it and usually I can figure it out. And then if I can't, then I'll talk to some friends about it. And then usually we can figure out by that point. And then if I we still can't figure out the problem, then I'll go read every book on the topic. And that's what I did with this problem of distraction. I read all the books that tell you to go on a digital detox and throw away your phone and time manage this and time manage that. And none of them dealt with the deeper psychology around why we don't do what we said we're going to do. And by the way, James, this is not a new problem. Plato, okay, the Greek philosopher 2,500 years ago talked about akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. This is not something that the iPhone and Facebook created in our lives. We have always been easily distracted. And so we have to go back to the root causes of why we get distracted. So the benefit of this methodology is that you will live your life according to what you say is important to you. 
right? That whatever your values are and whatever you want to do with your time, if you want to play video games, wonderful. If you want to do crossword puzzles, no problem. I'm not one of these people who says, oh, you know, video games are morally inferior to watching football or Fox News on TV. No, anything you want to do with your time is fine. What I want to help people do is to live their life and spend their time with intent according to their values. And so you're saying that time management is pain management. And so a lot of this stuff is just hooey because it's not dealing with the underlying need to procrastinate, need to do things that you haven't intended to do. And that it's actually your communication with yourself and your pact with yourself, if you will, that is got to be the guiding light. And these techniques help you to do that. And then the time management becomes a lot easier because you're on the things that you've already agreed you want to do. Right. So that's where we have to start. So clearly, you know, there are lots of techniques and tips and tricks and life hacks that are effective. But the reason that, you know, most of them fail is because you're not looking at the root cause of the problem. And so I think that a good metaphor here is with food. You know, so I used to be clinically obese. Today at 42, I'm in the best shape of my life. And what changed in my life is that, you know, I stopped blaming and shaming and stopped blaming. And this is, people do this with technology distraction all the time, right? The blamers, they say, oh, it's uh, the internet doing it to me. It's the modern world doing it to me. It's all this bad stuff outside of me that's at fault. So the blamers, that's futile because you're not going to travel into some, you know, time machine and go back to an age before distraction. There was never such an age. Mm. And these technologies mm. and distractions are not going away. So being a blamer is futile. The other side of the spectrum is the shamers. And this is what I used to do. I would shame myself, right? I would say, oh, you see, I'm getting distracted. I'm such a distractible person. I have an addictive personality. I must have a short attention span. There must be something wrong with me. I need to go get a diagnosis. And I would shame myself into thinking that somehow I was broken. And of course, that's not helpful either because, you know, procrastination and distraction is not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply that you don't have the skills to deal with these distractions in a healthier manner. And so we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be what's called claimers. Claimers claim responsibility not for how they feel. This is a very popular misconception. You cannot control how you feel. You cannot control these urges. All you can control is how you respond to those urges, to those sensations, to those internal triggers, hence the term responsibility. So for example, when you feel the urge to sneeze, right? You don't control that urge to sneeze, just like you don't control the urge to go check your phone. What you can control mm. is what you will do with that discomfort. Do you sneeze all over mm -hmm. everyone and get them sick? Or do you take out a tissue and cover your face? Because that's the responsible thing to do. So what we mm. have to do when it comes to time management is to learn how to deal with that discomfort. Just like I had to learn that the reason I was overeating and I was clinically obese wasn't because food was delicious. <laughs> food is made to be delicious. Technology is designed to be engaging. Would we want it any other way? Should we tell McDonald's, hey, your food is too good. Can you please make it less tasty? Hey, Netflix, hmm. your movies and shows are way too entertaining. Please make them boring. No, that's never going to happen. So what we have to do instead is to learn that the reason we are looking for escape, the reason we are overdoing these things is because we are looking for that emotional relief. And so the way I lost weight was to really think about why was I overeating? Well, it was because I was eating when I was bored. It was eating when I was lonely. It was eating because I felt ashamed about how much I had eaten. So this is why I'm so anti this tech is bad. Stop using tech. It does nothing but shame people, just like we shame people for overeating without understanding the deeper reasons why we, we go in excess. Mm -hmm. I get it. And, you know, for startup founders, they're sort of 
required to be supreme multitaskers, right? The joke is that you go from being CEO to being the janitor in five minutes. Do you think that kind of multitasking prevents them from focusing or hitting traction or? Yeah. So I've been a founder twice now and it's not a fun job. I have to tell you, <laughs> it's a very, very difficult job. And what I always tell folks that I consider investing in their company and I just, you know, speaking with different startup founders, I say that the CEO's only job, you only have one job and that job is to prioritize. That's really all you do. You just are a professional prioritizer. Everything else is detail. The problem is that the vast majority of people who want to be startup founders, they make no time in their day for their key responsibility. They are so busy doing what we call reactive work. There are two types of work. We have reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is reacting to the emails, reacting to the Slack notifications, reacting to the phone calls. And many people, funny enough, very comfortable doing that all day because thinking is hard work, right? Reflecting requires, you know, the brain is a cognitive miser. We don't like to spend energy thinking. So many people don't do it. If you want a huge competitive advantage in the startup ecosystem, here's the trick. Here's the magic formula. Make time to think in your day because you cannot do the planning, the strategic thinking, the prioritizing if you are constantly distracted. So this goes back to step two of how to become indistractable, making time for traction in your day. Even if it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, if you can book that time in your day to spend time thinking, you will be doing something that almost nobody else in your industry is doing. I guarantee it. Nobody is thinking in your industry. Odds are they're not making that time to think. That's right. I mean, most founders are very tightly scheduled, right? Down to the 15 minute mark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that rigor you're saying isn't necessarily helping them with focus because it's not getting them to the right priorities. Time boxing technique, I think, can be very, very helpful. In fact, in my interviews with folks that uh, the people who were indistractable that I learned from, they all use this time boxing technique rather than the to-do list technique. The to-do list technique is horrible for many reasons, but we can go into that. But the time boxing technique has been shown in literally thousands of of peer-reviewed studies to be very, very effective, but it's about how we schedule that time. Are you constantly going from one meeting to the next to the next and not actually doing work, <laughs> right? Doing the hard thinking. I know many of your listeners are engineers. You know, engineers, your entire day almost needs to be spent doing reflective work that the number one cause of bugs in a program are interruptions, right? Distractions that take you out of that, that concentration mode. So an engineer is probably spending the vast majority of their day with that reflective work time that you can only do without distraction. So it's really about how you spend that time. And this time boxing thing, how does that work? Yeah. So time boxing uses a technique that psychologists call making an implementation intention, which is a fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, right? So that's planning out your entire day according to your values. And so this is what I call turning your values into time. So I walk people through how to make sure that you can live out your values by first understanding, well, what are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. And so what we have to ask ourselves is how would the person I want to become spend their time, right? Many of us talk a good game. We say, oh, what are your values? Oh, I value my health. I value my relationships. I value my family. But do you have that time in your schedule or is it something that you give the scraps and leftovers of your time to those things that you say you profess that you value? So it's really about being intentional about here's how I went to spend my time, including the fun stuff, right? If you want to spend time playing video games, I mentioned, great, but put that time in your schedule so that you know it's coming. So that's what time boxing is all about. Now, the beauty of it, you know, that 
technique's been around for a very, very long time. I didn't invent it. What I tried to push this field forward around is this idea of doing a schedule sync. And I think this is something that the founders listening will really appreciate. One of the big problems that people have is that employees and managers have very little understanding about how they are spending their time. And this causes a lot of problems because when we use this to-do list methodology of, well, here's my list of things, here's my backlog, here's all the things I'm going to do, whether it's a to-do list or on a Kanban or whatever, and we just throw it over the wall and say, hey, do all this stuff. We have no conception of how long that stuff takes. And so this is part of why the the to-do list is so horrible. (laughs) And it's not that keeping a list of the things you have to get done is a bad thing. It's running your life on a to-do list, right? If you wake up in the morning and look at your to-do list rather than your schedule, you're doing it wrong. Because what you will do when you look at the to-do list is you'll do the easy stuff, you'll do the fun stuff, you won't do the important hard stuff. And so what I recommend doing is when you make a time box calendar, and I give you the tools on exactly how to do that, I can give you a link for the show notes. I built a tool that anyone can use to do this for free. Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to make time for all the things that are important to you in your day, take care of yourself, taking care of your relationships, and of course, taking care of your work. And then what you're going to do is you're going to sit down with your manager, you're going to sit down with your boss, and you're going to show your boss, here's how I'm going to spend my work day. Okay, and you do this once a week. On Monday mornings, it takes 10 to 15 minutes, takes almost no time, and it will change your life. Because what you're going to do, you're going to show that schedule to your manager, right? You're going to show them how you're going to spend that time. And this prevents you from taking what I think is some of the worst advice in personal development and self-help when it comes to productivity. We've all heard this terrible trope that if you want to get more done, if you don't want to be distracted, then you need to learn how to say no, right? What kind of stupid advice is it to say no to the person who pays your bills, right? The person who pays your month check to tell your boss, no, you're going to get fired. That's horrible advice. Instead, you shouldn't be the one who says no. Your manager should be the one who says no. So when you have a time box calendar, you have a physical artifact. You have something that you can show them and you can say, look, here's how I'm spending my time this week. Now you see this other piece of paper over here. You see this other list. These are all the things that I didn't know where to put into my schedule. Can you help me reprioritize those things? And invariably, every time you sit down and do this schedule sync, you will find that there is some misappropriation of time. And so what you can do is to say, oh, you know what? That task that's on your calendar or that meeting, actually, that's much less important than that thing you didn't put in your calendar. Let's flip flop those around. And the reason managers love this is that now they have exposure into, hey, how are you spending your time exactly? And employees love it because they know they're working on the right stuff as opposed to getting a surprise later on that, hey, all that time you spent working on that task was actually much less important than this other task. So that's what schedule syncing is all about. Got it. And can you hire for this skill of indistractability? I mean, are there are there some tells when you're interviewing people or anyone can learn this? Anyone can learn this. This is a very quick read. It's available on Audible. You can get it anywhere. It's a methodology that I made for people who are easily distracted. <laughs> I mean, I, I really did write the book in short little chapters that anyone can, can read and implement right away. As an expert in this whole area, I mean, you've written one book called Hooked, one called Indistractable. Is there some product building methodology that you might put forward these days for tech founders? that bring both of those lessons together? I think the biggest lesson that we have to remember is that we ultimately do have to create value, that I think that there's this narrative that's gone almost too far. You know, when I started teaching behavioral design, I had to convince people that this stuff works, right? Because people would say, well, we'll just build the best product and that's enough. 
right? If you build a better mousetrap, then the world will uh, beat a path to your door. And I don't think that's true. I've never thought that's true because the best product doesn't necessarily win. I mean, you've been in the Valley for a very long time. You've seen probably all kinds of products that were the best technology that didn't capture the market because they didn't create user habits. Creating the best product is table stakes. It's really about capturing the monopoly of the mind. That's what a product needs to have to keep users coming back. So I think that, you know, it used to be I had to convince people that that was something important. Today, I don't really have to convince people of that anymore. Now I have to kind of convince people the other direction that I think the pendulum has swung too far now that people think, oh my gosh, if I put in gamification and variable rewards, then my app will be incredibly addictive. Well, is it okay if I addict people? Look, you're not going to addict people, (laughs) right? Like I work with enterprise products. I work with healthcare products. I work with education products, fitness products. None of them are going to addict anyone, (laughs) right? That's ridiculous. Nobody's going to get addicted to an enterprise software product. And so sometimes have to talk people down a little bit like, look, these techniques are good, but fundamentally you have to cater to a user need here. It's about helping people do things they themselves want to do, but for lack of good product design, they haven't done in the past. So recently there's been this big Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma that's gotten a lot of play. People are talking about it. You know, you're right in the middle of all that. What were your thoughts watching that documentary? Very conflicting emotions about that movie. So I was interviewed for that documentary back in 2018, August of 2018, so more than two years ago. And I wasn't included in the film because I think that my narrative did not fit their narrative. You know, on one hand, I am fully in support of people being more aware about how they are spending their time. And there is no doubt that these technologies, specifically social media, is designed to capture as much of your attention and time as you will give them. The big problem with the movie, they don't talk about anything that the user can do until literally the credits, right? While the credits are rolling, do they talk about anything that the user can do. And so my key point here, I think this is really the missed opportunity, is that you mentioned earlier in the interview about this battle of attention between the user and the company. We win. The users always win. We are much, much more powerful than these technologies. And I'll prove it to you. After 90 minutes of them telling us how technology is addicting you, and they use that term completely incorrectly. That is not what addiction is. Totally misconstrued what it means to actually be addicted. But they talk about how it's manipulating your brain, how there's nothing you can do about it, how we're just puppets. I mean, they literally use these very manipulative movie-making tactics to show how you're this voodoo doll. It's completely, it's amazing how hypocritical this film is and that they use all the manipulative tactics that they say not to use on social media, principally being that they talk about how social media is a big filter bubble and and how terrible it is that they don't let you see any other people's opinions. And then they commit this sin itself in not letting people like me give any other perspective in the film. Or how about any other social scientists or researchers that show the other perspective? And so the biggest problem with the movie is that they don't talk about anything that you yourself can do as a user. We are so much more powerful than these tech companies. And so after 90 minutes of telling you how terrible and how there's no way you can get out of it, the only solution is to regulate and legislate do they mention, you know what, you should probably turn off notifications. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And and they're partially right because of course, of course, you know, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Really? Can we complain that technology is addicting us, is hijacking our brain when you haven't even taken five minutes to turn off those stupid notifications that you're constantly getting from these apps? Of course, we're more powerful. 
There's nothing Zuckerberg can do to reach back in your phone and turn on notifications. Of course not. So that's what I think was the biggest missed opportunity and why they didn't include me in the film. Because when you tell people the truth that, look, are there things we can do legislatively? Probably. Yeah. Are there changes that can be made with these companies? Of course. But the film was made two years ago. They don't talk about all the things the tech companies have done, like hired over 35,000 content moderators, banned political advertising on Twitter. They don't talk about that. That would have not been a very fun narrative to hear that, oh, wait a minute, we can actually do something about this in an afternoon. The good news is that our species always does the same thing. Whenever we are faced with the negative repercussions of a technology, which there are many, right? Paul Virilio said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So what did we do? Did we stop sailing ships? How come we don't hear about shipwrecks today? What do we do? We made ships better. And so that's exactly what we always do. We adapt and we adopt. We adapt our behaviors, right? Then this is what indistractable is all about is asking ourselves, why would we wait? Why would we wait for the geniuses in Washington to do something about the problem? Why would we wait for Facebook and Google to fix this for us? Why would we not get started right now to see what we can do ourselves? And the second thing we can do, and this is why I'm so happy to be on this show, is we can adopt new technologies to fix the last generation of technologies. We can make the ships better, so to speak, so that there are less shipwrecks. This is exactly what we need. We need more people to get into this field. We need more technologists because I think what scares me, James, is that, you know, when I moved to Silicon Valley back in 2006, skepticism was a Silicon Valley value, right? That was a good thing to be skeptical. Now it's cynicism. Now there's nothing that technology can do right. It's all evil. It's all mind manipulation. It's all, you know, election meddling. And there are clearly problems that we need to fix. But the solution is to fix these problems with more people getting into our field, more people improving the problems with the last generation of technology. The first book you published called Hooked. What was the main thesis of Hooked? So the idea behind Hooked is that, you know, you can buy growth for a company. You can always buy growth, right? Back up the truck and buy ads on Google or Facebook or television spots or radio spots. You can always buy growth for your company. What you can't buy is engagement. That has to be designed into the product. And so back in 2012, when my last company was acquired, I was looking for what to do next. And I had this thesis that the products of the future that would really make a difference in the world had to have habits embedded in them is because what I saw was that the interface was shrinking. So as we went from desktops to laptops to mobile screens to now wearable devices, and now even more recently with Amazon Alexa, the visual interface has all but disappeared. And so what that means is that there is less space for what we call an external trigger. There's less room for the visual stimulus to get the user to do what you've designed for them to do, which means that in the absence of the real estate for that visual stimulus, that habits become increasingly important. And so this is something that I saw back in 2002 12 and thought, you know, if I'm going to start another business, I have got to figure out how to make that business into a habit because, you know, if you're on the third screen on someone's phone or, you know, if you take the auditory interface like Amazon Alexa, if you don't remember to ask for that specific skill, you don't exist, right? Your company might as well not exist if your customer doesn't remember to use the product. So how do you create those habits? So I looked and looked and looked and I couldn't find any book on how to build habit forming products. So I decided to write about it and I didn't intend to write a book. I just started blogging about it at my blog nearandfar.com. And then I got an email from a professor of mine at Stanford and he said, I really like your framework. What do you think about teaching a class together? And so he invited me to, uh, he kind of came me carte blanche to design this class. And then I moved over to the Hassel Planner Institute of Design at Stanford and started teaching there. And then that became my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit Forming Products. And it was really meant 
meant for me, right? I was looking to figure out what are the design patterns behind a product that becomes a habit. And thankfully, at that time, I had a lot of friends in uh, Silicon Valley who were at many of these companies who are really the masters of consumer behavior and behavioral design. So uh, I had friends at Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp and Slack and, uh, you know, all these companies who were so good at designing behavior. So not only did I get the academic aspect from spending a lot of time reading consumer psychology journals at the Stanford Stacks, but then I also got the real world application. Many of our friends and colleagues in Silicon Valley kind of revealing the secrets of how do you bring consumers back? And so that's really what went into my first book, Hook. Now, that being said, I never wrote Hooked for the big tech companies. I didn't write it for Google or Facebook or the gaming companies. They'd known these techniques for years. And I've never worked for any of those companies, by the way. The reason I wrote the book was not for their benefit. They'd known how to do this for quite a while. I wrote the book for the rest of us. I wrote the book so that everybody out there building the kind of products that require consumer engagement can build those kind of products to build healthy habits in users' lives. So since the book was published, people in every conceivable industry, uh, the book sold over 350,000 copies, and I get emails constantly from industries I never expected to use the book are using the methodology. And I've based my angel investment strategy looking for people who are applying the hooked model for good. So I'll give you a, a couple examples. Most top of mind for me is a company by the name of Kahoot. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They went public last year. Uh, I think now they're valued at what, like $1.3 billion. And five years ago, I got a call. I do these office hours every week. I still do them where uh, anyone who's read my books can call and if they have a question. We just talk for free, you know, whatever they want to ask. And about five years ago, this guy, Johan, calls me and says, hey, I think we're going to use your hook model to build this educational product. What do you think? And I loved it. <laughs> and so about twice a year, I happen to stumble across a company that's using my hook model in a way to build healthy habits. Kahoot is a great example of that. They're using the hook model to get kids hooked onto online learning and in-classroom learning. And so that's a wonderful application of using habits for good. Got it. And so a lot of these learnings are really applicable for early stage startup companies, not necessarily the BMS. Right. There's really two places where the hook model is useful. One in the very, very early stages, right, when it's still a napkin sketch idea, you can stop. And before you spend a lot of money on the design of the product and coding the product and all that stuff, answer these five fundamental questions to make sure that your product matches the archetype for a habit forming product. That's going to save you a lot of time, money and heartache to make sure that if your product needs a habit, that it fits these criteria. The other place that it's really, really helpful is in the latter stages. So this is where people call me the plumber because I stop up the user leaks. So where I get a lot of phone calls is from people who are at a company that has poor customer retention, right? People aren't using the product like they expected and they don't know why. So in that case, you can use the hook model as a diagnostic tool to figure out, wait a minute, what's deficient here? What experiments can we go out and test to see how we can fix the product to make it more sticky, more habit forming? Got it. And so what are those five tenets? There's four steps to the hook model and five fundamental questions you have to ask. So the four steps of the hook model start with a trigger phase. The trigger, there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers and we have internal triggers. I'll get back to the internal triggers in a minute, but let's talk about the external triggers. The external triggers, every designer is familiar with. These are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that prompts you to action right? So on Facebook or LinkedIn or TikTok, it's a notification, right? It's an email. It's something that tells you, hey, do this action, which brings us to the next step of the hook, the action phase. And the action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. One of the backbone tenets of consumer psychology, this is called Lewin's equation, is that the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. So if we can make that key behavior, the key 
habit as easy as possible to do that intended behavior, more likely people will do that behavior. And so there's all kinds of things we can do to make that behavior as easy as possible. And of course, I'm giving you the 30,000 foot view here. There's a lot more detail in the book. The third step is really the engine of the hook model. This is called the variable reward. The variable reward, it's worth spending just a minute on because this is very important. So the variable reward comes out of the work of B.F. Skinner. And Skinner is known as the father of operant conditioning. And he did these experiments back in the 1950s and 60s, where he took a pigeon, put the pigeon in a box. Today, we call it a Skinner box. And he gave this pigeon a reward, a little food pellet every time it pecked at the disc. And so very quickly, Skinner could train the pigeon to peck at the disc if and only if the pigeon was hungry. That's part of the experiment. A lot of people forget the experiment did not work if the pigeon wasn't hungry. Just like we can't make a user do something they don't want to do, there has to be an inherent need. If the pigeon was hungry, if they had that need, then they would peck at the disc. So he could train them to consistently peck at the disc whenever they had that need, that hunger. Now, one day, Skinner ran out of these food pellets. He didn't have enough when he walked into the lab. And so he couldn't afford to give the pigeon a food pellet every time. He could only afford to give it to them once in a while. And to his amazement, what he found was that the rate of response increased when there was what we call an intermittent reinforcement. So sometimes when the pigeon pecked at the disc, there would be no food pellet, no reward. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the pigeon pecked more often when there was some type of variability around that reward, the schedule of reinforcement. And we see this same phenomenon in all sorts of products and services. Online, the best example is the feed. Have you noticed how everything today has a feed, right? Why is that? Well, on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, that feed mechanic is a variable reward structure. It's using that same psychology of searching and searching for that next variable reward. So sometimes you'll get something great, but often you won't. Right. And you'll be looking, looking, nothing, 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 no food. And then suddenly you'll get this really great payoff. You get your dopamine hit and that's a variable reward. Right. And we see this. It's not just something that is new to technology. It's what makes television interesting, right? We want to know what's going to happen next. It's what makes the news interesting, right? The first three letters of news is N-E-W, right? And we want to know what's new in the world, not what happened yesterday, what's new and different. Sports is probably the best example. Why do we love watching a ball bounce around a court or a pitch? There's uncertainty about what's going to happen next. Romance, what makes romance romantic is the uncertainty. That's what gives you the butterflies in the stomach. It's all about variability. So anywhere there's mystery, uncertainty, that's where we engage, we focus, and it's highly habit-forming. So you'll find this variability in all sorts of experiences, both offline and online. Got it. So the third thing is this variable reward structure. And then the fourth and final step, and probably the most ignored is, or overlooked, I should say, is what we call the investment phase. And the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook. Now, the way this works is in two ways. Number one, users can load the next trigger. Loading the next trigger is when the user does something themselves to bring themselves back, okay? So for example, when I send someone a message on WhatsApp, there's no immediate reward right? There's no points, there's no badges, nothing really happens when I send someone a message. What I'm doing is I am loading the next trigger because I am likely to get a reply. And that reply comes coupled in the form of an external trigger, which prompts me through the hook once again, okay? So not some piece of spammy marketing, not some expensive ad, but rather something the user did to bring themselves back. That's called loading the next trigger. The second part, the second way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass, which is even more important, is what I call stored value. Stored value 
is really a revolutionary concept in the history of manufacturing because, you know, before to change a product was very expensive, right? Henry Ford is quoted as saying you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black. Why? Because it was really difficult for him to retool his shop and make different color cars back then. Well, today, when it comes to these interactive products, we are changing them on the fly for each and every user. It's a product of one because of this concept of stored value. So the more data, the more content, the more followers, the more reputation you accrue on a platform, the stickier it becomes, the more invest, the more you invest in it, the more value is stored in that product. And so unlike things made out of atoms in the real world that depreciate with use, that lose value with wear and tear, habit-forming products appreciate with use. They get better and better the more we use them because of the investment the user is putting into the product so that through successive cycles through the hook, eventually the product does not even require that external trigger at all. Eventually, I remember I I said this in the very beginning when I started walking through the model, we start to rely on what's called the internal trigger. The internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. So with all the products we use, everything we use, online, offline, the only reason we use any product, in fact, the only reason we do anything in life, uh, the seat of motivation is a about the desire to escape discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. So when a product's use can attach to an uncomfortable sensation, whatever that might be, you're feeling lonely, check Instagram or Facebook. You're feeling uncertain, Google it. You're bored, lots of solutions for boredom, right? Check the news, stock prices, sports scores, Pinterest, Reddit. When a product attaches to that feeling, that's where the habit is cemented because now you don't even need that ping or ding anymore. The user is checking the product on their own out of habit. You know, it's interesting. I think this is why the revolution with podcasting has happened over the past several years. You know, podcasting was not a thing for years after the iPod came out. You know, nobody was really podcasting. And then suddenly over the past few years, it's become a thing. I think part of the reason is that the habit of getting into the car and reflexively turning on the radio has been substituted now. The reflex is plug in your phone. Got it. When you look at tech companies, what are they getting wrong? Yeah, I will say that A few years ago, the biggest myth was that these tech companies, the tech behemoths, they somehow got lucky, right? That Zuckerberg, he just got lucky. (laughs) And that used to be the mentality when I would work with companies that somehow they just stumbled onto it. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody knows that Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard and he was a computer science major. What people don't realize also, he was also a psychology major. When you look at Kevin Systrom, right? He was a symbolic systems major at Stanford, which is the intersection of psychology and technology. You know, these folks understand what makes you click and what what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so I think that used to be the biggest myth that there wasn't this deeper psychology even present. I think that's really changed now. I think people realize that understanding consumer psychology and behavioral design is an essential skill these days. You're working with startups now. And so what do you help them with? So there's two categories. One is my consulting work. You know, I've been doing for years now where a company will call me. Typically, it's a company that has VC funding already and they don't know how to improve retention and engagement. And so I'll work with them on improving some aspect of their hook model. And then they go off and test it. And then we discuss those tests, those changes and see how we can continue to improve engagement and retention and form those habits. And then once in a while, I'll find a very early stage company that I think is promising and has the opportunity to use the hook model for good. And that's where I'll, I'll personally invest. Well, Nir, this has been great to chat with you, man. I always love hearing your thoughts and uh, congratulations on both your books and uh, where you are right now. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the forum to talk about it.
You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.